Well, how do you get closer to God? How do you know God more? How do you draw nearer to the spiritual? Man's quest for spirituality is age old. And many people have put together, well, God is spirit. We are spirit and flesh. So if you want to draw nearer to the God who is spirit, you've got to do something about that flesh part of you. Your physical body or your flesh is keeping you back. It's limiting you from knowing God more. And so the solution is to deny yourself, your body, your flesh, limit it. So to enhance your mind or your spirit. The term for this is asceticism. And asceticism is all about the intense denial of of the self, of the body, for the sake of pursuing spirituality. And this self-denial focuses on the physical body. may include fasting, sexual abstinence, sleep deprivation. More extreme forms include harming the body, exposure to the elements, near starvation. This form of spirituality was prevalent in the ancient world, You may have heard of a Jewish group called the Ascends. They were like the Pharisees. They were as strict as the Pharisees, maybe even more so. But they withdrew from society and they lived in these ascetic little communes in the desert. If you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that was their library. They were known for taking voluntary vows of poverty. They had no possessions, no money. They didn't eat meat. They didn't drink wine. Many of them were celibate. Every morning they ritually bathed and they strictly observed the Sabbath. And they did these things thinking that this was the means to salvation, to spirituality. And such asceticism found expression in the Christian church as well. Maybe you've heard of Christian monasticism. And monastics were ascetics who believed in totally withdrawing from society, living in seclusion, to completely devote themselves to spiritual pursuits. And in time, the group together and the men became monks, the women became nuns, and they similarly observed a strict diet, simplified dress, celibacy, harsh treatment of the body. They believe these practices led to greater holiness or spirituality. One notable example was Simeon the Stylite from the AD 400s. You all know that guy, I'm sure. But he was so extreme in his practices that the other monks kicked him out of the monastery. It's too much for them. And later he found a pillar among some ruins in Aleppo, modern day Syria. It's about 50 feet tall, had a little platform on top, and he determined to live out the rest of his days on top of the tower or pillar. Morning, night, hot, cold, summer, winter, didn't matter. He was just living on top of a tower. Village boys would climb up daily to bring him bread and milk. And he lived there for how long? 37 years, 37 years, but others regarded Simeon as a great spiritual, holy man, unmatched in piety and devotion. So is that so? You know, is that, is that spirituality? If we want to be closer to God, should we, should we leave the world and harshly treat our bodies and live on top of a tower for 37 years? Will that succeed in bringing us closer to God? Or maybe not that extreme, but what about abstaining from certain foods? What about celibacy? What about dressing a certain way? Will that make us godlier? Is asceticism the way to God? We've been asking such questions of true spirituality for several weeks now in our study of Colossians. 
And that's because other teachers around the Colossian church were teaching and promoting alternate paths of true spirituality. Paths that didn't go to or through Christ, but went around Christ, subverted Christ, even outright diminished Christ. And false teachers were advocating legalism or mysticism or asceticism as this eclectic approach to true spirituality. Do you want to be close to God, to the divine? Jesus, he's fine, but he's not enough. No, he's he's not God's only son. He's not divine. He's not sufficient. You need to keep this list of rules via legalism. You need to go through other mediators like angels via mysticism. And you need to beat and deny the body via asceticism. That's what salvation or spirituality is all about. And the young church in Colossae was being confronted and challenged by these contrary worldviews. And so Paul writes Colossians to help them respond. He helps them think through what's lacking with all these isms, legalism, mysticism, asceticism. Why are they dead ends? Why are they false? Why do they not only not lead people to God, but actually plunge them further in the darkness? Well, Paul explains that it's very important for the church to be equipped with the truth. You need to know why Jesus Christ is the only means to salvation. And you also need to know why contrary worldviews are false. You know, as Christians, we're not just supposed to stick our head in the sand and just blindly believe what others have always believed just because. No, we need to base our beliefs on an understanding of Scripture and, and contend for the faith. And books like Colossians greatly help us with that still today. The specific heresy behind Colossians is gone. But the underlying philosophies are all around us. And so it's still very good for us to identify them, understand them, but also expose them as to why we don't see it that way. We're going to finish doing that this morning as we finish the second chapter of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. That's where you can open your Bibles now to Colossians chapter 2. And for many weeks, we've been setting Paul's rebuttal to the false teaching around town. It starts with his general warning back in verse 8 against being taken captive by the world's philosophy and empty deception, he says. And after that, he goes on to show, instead, you should be taken captive by Christ. He shows the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. Now, he alone is the only answer to our sin problem. He's the only path to true salvation or spirituality. If you want to know God, we have to go through Christ alone. After this, though, Paul comes back to revisit man's philosophies and empty deception to to speak against them. And he wants them to see how these other teachings that go around Christ fall short. And so in verses 16 and 17, he shows how legalism is not the answer. In 18 and 19, how mysticism is not the answer. These do not succeed in bringing people closer to God. And then finally today, we'll look at verses 20 through 23, how asceticism is not the answer. These are all related, but distinct enough. That's why we've been treating them on their own. And so let's read this now, Colossians 2, 20 through 23. As he finishes up this chapter and really kind of his argument, he says this, verse 20, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, 
as if you were living in the world? Do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You see at the end there, verse 23, it's really stinging diagnosis of the world's solutions. That their teaching has, has an appearance of wisdom, has a veneer of wisdom, but it's, it's of no value when it actually comes to spiritual growth, overcoming sin. I mean, if you listen to them and what they're saying, it's like being given medicine that does absolutely nothing to help your actual condition. And even worse, it leads people to think now they're healthy when they're still sick. And specifically here, we're going to see how that's the case with an emphasis on their ascetic practices that are of no value. So we're just going to go through this passage and explain it like we've been doing. Use that same, you know, really simple outline just to help you hang some thoughts on. And so we'll begin with number one. The exhortation. The exhortation. And it comes in verses 20 and 21. Let's read those again. He says in verse 20, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Now, this is not a direct exhortation like before, but it is an exhortation nonetheless. He's already given them two clear, direct exhortations. Verse 16, he says, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink. In verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. He's already made two points. Speaking of these false teachers, like, don't let them judge you. Don't let them defraud you. And here in verse 20, he's adding a third, like, don't listen to them. Don't submit yourself to what they're saying. But this time, instead of phrasing it directly as a prohibition, he puts it as a question that they would come to this conclusion themselves. And the question is this, why do you submit yourself to their decrees? You see that word for decrees, it's Dogmatizo. It's from the word dogma. It's referring to established ordinances or laws, if you will. You know, every belief system comes with a set of rules telling people how to live. And that, that's understandable, but you know, if there's another person who has a belief system that you just strongly disagree with, you do not think that is true, why would you put yourself under their practices? Why would you do what they say? Why would you follow their decrees? And that's what some of these Christians were apparently doing. And for example, today the Quran tells women to dress modestly. And that's why some women wear a burqa, which is literally a veil that covers 100% of your body except a, a tiny slit for your eyes. And I saw a Muslim woman in a BBC interview explain why she wears a burqa while other Muslim women only wear a headscarf. And she said, quote, because it gets you closer to God. It's a spiritual thing more than anything, end quote. Now, as a Christian, you actually have liberty. So if you want to wear a headscarf for the fun of it, go right ahead. I mean, not for these reasons, 
We disagree fundamentally with Islam and the Quran. It's not from God. So if a Christian woman today, though, wore a burqa under the belief that it made her closer to God or somehow enhanced her spirituality or that this was required from God, she'd be seriously misguided and deluded. Like, why are you doing that? Why are you submitting yourself to the decrees of others? You're going to get swept away, not only in wrong belief, but wrong practice. So that's what was happening in Colossae. As some were putting themselves under the laws or the decrees of others. What kind of decrees are we talking about? The Colossian Christians were not being influenced by Islam, but by a, a Jewish pagan mystery religion, as best we can tell. This like Jewish pagan hybrid. These false teachers no doubt had an ascetic bent, believing spirituality came through the, the severe denial of the body and of the flesh. And so naturally, they had ascetic decrees. And you get a little sampling of these decrees in verse 21, right? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. We don't know exactly to what these decrees refer, but it seems pretty clear they at least include food and drink. That was made obvious back in verse 16. Perhaps like the ascends, they abstained from all meat and all wine. They likely had a list of taboo items you couldn't even touch lest you become defiled or unclean. And possibly this list of don'ts includes sexual relations. These were all well-known forms of austerity in the ancient world. And whatever the application, though, it's, it's clear how extreme they are. Like, don't even taste that thing. Don't even touch that thing. And why not? Well, you want to be closer to God, right? You've got to starve the flesh and the body if you're going to elevate your mind and kind of free your spirit. This is the way. But this is very wrong. The Bible never teaches this. That you draw near to God through faith in his son, Christ. That's how. Spirituality comes by being filled with his spirit, knowing his word, walking in his ways. And the Bible just doesn't teach this dualism where the physical is inherently evil and has to be diminished or destroyed to experience the spiritual. God made us physical and spiritual. He declared both very good. You can try and deny your body all you want. That alone does not make you godly. Asceticism is not the way. In fact, it leads people astray. A hundred miles to the east of Colossae is Ephesus, and they were going through similar issues or facing similar issues. And Paul writes to along the same lines to help them through Timothy over in first Timothy four, one through three. And just listen to what he says about the same issues. First Timothy four, one through three. He says, but the spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And then he says in verse three, what are these people like? Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. This kind of faux spirituality has always been going on. We know that these false teachers in Colossae worshipped angels. And maybe they even said that it was an angel 
through a heavenly vision is the one who gave them these decrees. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Who knows? But if so, it wasn't a holy angel. And Paul calls this literally the doctrine of demons. We need to beware anyone seeking to oppose upon us decrees that are just absent from or especially contrary to God's word. Don't foolishly put yourself under their decrees. Now, Paul's not done. To help us just really understand this issue, he's going to explain some things. And so we have number two, the explanation. Simple enough, the explanation. And Paul gives this indirect exhortation through a question. Why do you submit yourself to their decrees? Why put yourself under their asceticism? It's obviously implied, like, you shouldn't do that. Why not? Well, he had some notes of explanation to his question. You see that at the beginning of verse 20. He says, first, you know, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, so on. You know, that, that right there is what's called in the Greek a, a first-class conditional statement. And that just means Paul makes it a question, but he believes it's true. And so you could, for understanding, you can put, it's as if he's saying, since you have died with Christ. The reason you should not submit yourself to these false decrees is because you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. You know, we've seen this all before. I'll send you back one more time to verse 8, where he starts off this whole argument. Look back at verse 8 in Colossians 2. He says, see to it. That no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And Christ is sufficient for us, for all of our spiritual needs. Verse 10, in Christ we've been made complete. We've even died with Christ. We've been buried and raised again. Verse 12 says, having been buried with him. In baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So, really, all that we need, we have in Christ. Specifically, here it says we've died with him to these elementary principles. Like we we just read, we saw that word in verse 8. And back then, we we understood it to refer to the foundational matters of a subject, the, the elementary principles. Of a subject, the rudiments, the ABCs. So just think like, what are the ABCs of man's religions and man's worldviews? It would be things like just works, laws, decrees, rules, things like legalism, mysticism, asceticism. The man in his natural thinking just thinks he can do enough. He can be good enough. He can discipline his body enough to become spiritual earn God's favor, enter salvation. This just represents man's base thinking. And the rudimentary notion that God can be reached through some sort of effort. But this is not so. Paul made the same point over in Galatians 4. He used the same term for elementary principles. And his conclusion, he said this. It's actually Galatians 5 verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. 
talking about the trying to, to please God through just laws, through rules. And that's really what the ascetics were doing as if they could earn God, earn spirituality through rules. Man's ways and worldviews are deceiving and enslaving, keeping people away from God. But in Christ, we've died to all that. Like it says in verse 20, we are not living in the world any longer. Now, obviously, we still reside on the planet. But you probably know what he means. It's again like back in verse 13 of chapter 1 of Colossians, that God has rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his son. And we are in the world, but no longer of the world. We no longer subscribe to its power, its beliefs, its ways. And so what he's saying here is like, why, why are you still living as if that's still your domain? That's still your home. It's not. The, the ways of the world should no longer ha- hold sway over us. Galatians 6.14, Paul said, But ne- may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Your bottom line in Christ, we, we're dead to the old. The old self, the old ways, the old master, the old Lord. We've come alive to the new, new self, new ways, new master, new Lord. And therefore we should live accordingly and guard against falling back under the yoke of man's empty, hopeless systems of religion and spirituality. That's not all. You see in verse 22, Paul adds a couple more explanations as to why you should not submit yourself to their decrees. Why else should we not listen to what they're saying, these people? Well, we've died with Christ to the elementary principles. That's one reason. But he adds another in verse 22. He mentions parenthetically which, uh, about their decrees. He says, which all refer to things destined to perish with use. And so the first extra reason he adds, it's almost comical. And it just further confirms he's talking mostly about food and drink. What are food and drink to us? Kind of interesting to think about. There are these consumables that God designed humans to require to live in this life. But once they're used, they cease to be. That just the very act of consuming food destroys food. And that term here, perish with use, refers to things that once they're used, they're just rendered unusable. And that applies to food. And that's why there's no market for used food. There's a market for used cars, used clothes. There's just no market for used food. You don't see Craigslist ads for like partially digested tri-tip. And once you eat something, it's yours. And as that food is digested, it will cease to be. And the point Paul is making in this is like, why would you base your eternal destiny and your spirituality on something so like earthly and and carnal and temporal, like food. Do you really think God has made eternal life based on food and drink? Do you really think you draw closer to the divine by not eating that pork chop or like not having that glass of wine? And food and drink, they're doomed to destruction by design. So how foolish and irrational to think that you, you will gain lasting victory over sin or even eternal life by what you eat and drink. Now, are such decrees really coming from God? They're not. 
And Paul makes this clear by giving another reason, another explanation to reject them. This is the end of verse 22. He says, still talking about their decrees, that they come in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. And to top things off, Paul just makes explicit, you know, these decrees, it's not like they're coming from God. They're just made up by men. It's not like God is commanding his people to be ascetics. Now, yes, we know for specific reasons, God did command his people in the Old Testament under the old law to abstain from certain foods. And if God truly decreed that today, well, we would do so. If he said so, we would do so. But the old covenant has been lifted. We are under the new covenant. We have liberty in Christ. Christ himself declared all foods clean. There are no more such restrictions. So don't let others put you under the burden of the old law. That was legalism when we studied it. Or especially man-made laws that God didn't even give. This is the pitfall of the Pharisees, and Jesus continually rebuked them for it. And he decried their false religion of man-made works and laws, which they even used to overturn God's laws. Like we read this morning in Matthew 15, Jesus said to them, verse 3, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? In verse 9, he says, But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And we likewise today have to watch out for anyone that would add to God's word and will and seek to bring us under that that yoke of slavery again. And it still happens. Seventh-day Adventists require strict kosher laws and advocate vegetarianism. Mormons restrict alcohol, wine, meat, tobacco, caffeine, and hot drinks. Catholics require celibacy of their priests and impose a 40-day fast on their people through Lent. None of these decrees come from the Bible. They are all man-made. So why are you putting yourself under them? You know, there's this intersection of legalism, mysticism, and asceticism in the church that the true church needs to constantly watch out for. This is not the path of real spirituality. Now, just to finish this up and help us in our understanding even further, Paul elaborates, so we finish with number three, the elaboration. The elaboration. Verse 23, Paul elaborates even more on the pitfalls of the beliefs and practices being put forth by the false teachers. Look at verse 23. He says, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and the severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Remember I told you at the beginning of Simeon, the stylite who lived on top of the pillar for 37 years. Over the years, he attracted sightseers. Pilgrims would stream to him and he had afternoon office hours where people would put up a ladder to get within speaking distance so they could talk to him. The emperor Theodosius II listened to his counsel. The clergy venerated him. He was, of course, later declared a saint by the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches. They viewed him as so wise and godly, such a spiritual man. And so it goes for today, people who fast, who follow strict rules, who deny themselves all worldly pleasures. They have a veneer of wisdom 
and spirituality. They're, they're respected by the world. But Paul says their wisdom is only in appearance. In reality, it's just a mirage. There's nothing there. And since they don't go through Christ alone, they don't have wisdom. Then we learn that back in Colossians 2, 3. What does that say? That in Christ are found all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you don't go through Christ, you have neither wisdom or knowledge. And this emptiness also pertains to their self-made religion, he says. No doubt this reference to their legalism and their angel worship. That they went beyond God's bounds of true worship. And they established their own rules and regulations. And all they found to God was false worship. And their self-abasement and severe treatment of the body were empty as well. Self-abasement, it's the same word from verse 18 we found. It just means it's a false humility. It's what that word means, a false humility. And so much of their practice was a show of humility, but it was just that. It was just a show. It was thinly veiled spiritual pride. And they earned the same rebuke Jesus gave the Pharisees in Matthew 6. Matthew 6, 16, he said, Whenever you fast... Do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. And truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. You know, these ascetics were likewise very diligent to make sure they were noticed by people in their practices. They were known for just abandoning personal hygiene, bathing, shaving. I mean, that they were too concerned with matters of the soul. They could not bother themselves with matters of the body. How spiritual. But you see, this desire to be seen by men and honored by men, that's just pride. And to top it all off, it just, it doesn't work. Asceticism doesn't do what it sets out to do. One of the main reasons they do this, they teach this, severely restricting themselves, even abusing their own bodies, was to mortify the flesh. They believed they could fight sin purely through self-denial. But Paul actually says that their ways are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Not even a little. Like if that's all you got, just asceticism, you have no value against the flesh. You really need to understand why that is. These ascetics had one thing right. That we do have a flesh problem. There's a problem with our bodies. Our bodies are not inherently evil. God created them good, but they are fallen. And so now they surely are given over to evil. They're corrupt and wicked even in their desires. And so we have eyes that look lustfully. We have tongues that speak lies. We have ears that love gossip. We have hands that strike down others. We have feet that run to evil, not to mention all manner of sexual morality Even non-Christians perceive that there's something wrong with how we use our bodies. We do have a problem. The Bible just calls this the sin problem. It extends to our spirit and our body. How do we solve this sin problem? Well, ascetics take the straitjacket approach. Just deny the body until you stop sinning. Just keep denying and tying up the body, restraining the body until you limit all sin. You know, make women wear veils so that you aren't tempted by their appearance. Or live in a monastery so the allures of the world can't get to you. In fact, just live alone so you're never tempted by envy or jealousy or strife. 
And, you know, for sure, force yourself to be celibate to avoid sexual morality. You know, on the outside, man's rules and decrees like this, they, they kind of seem to work to some. You know, the ascetic may succeed in avoiding a lot of sin. I mean, if you were forced to live on top of a tower for 37 years, there's just a lot of sin you don't have the opportunity to do. But is this the solution? Is that the secret to sanctification? Look, we have to say there is a sliver of biblical truth and wisdom here in denying the flesh. Romans 13, 14 says, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So it's not like we should be outright feeding the lusts of our flesh and feeding into these desires. But understand, no one ever got healthy purely by starvation. If that's all you got, you have no value. So here's why asceticism overall is not the solution. You can beat your body to a pulp. You can put a straitjacket on every part of your body. You can limit all manner of food and drink. But no matter what you do, you can't change your heart one bit. You can't do anything to change your, your inside, your nature, your heart. But that's why our sin problem truly resides. It's where it comes from. And this is why asceticism is ineffective. No amount of rules or restrictions will ever change your sin nature. An unbelieving man is under the mistaken notion that more rules will eventually lead to more righteousness. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't touch. Don't taste. Don't handle. As if adding up enough negatives leads to a positive. But it never does. Rules don't create morality. They're just attractive to people who like to fool themselves that they can be good. Now I'll say again, no amount of decrees ever changed the heart. And to make matters worse, people like this, they believe they're starving their flesh and overcoming sin. But in reality, they're just feeding a different part of their flesh and giving it new power. And that's pride. You know, for one, most ascetics are characterized by an intolerable spiritual pride as they look down on, you know, the common person who is not nearly as close to God as, as they are. They're not serious. But, you know, worse than this, you realize what's at the very heart of asceticism. It's a religion of self-reliance. And it operates based off the belief that you can do enough. You can try hard enough. You can discipline the body enough to get to God. That's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. It is precisely from this prideful self-reliance that we need to be freed. You know, attempting to work your way into favor with God, that is the problem, not the solution. Asceticism doesn't work, and it doesn't produce any true fruit. It only breeds hypocrisy, because it has no power to change the fallen heart of man that's given over to sin. And I think one of the clearest examples of all this I've referenced before is actually Lent. You know what Lent is. Catholics and some Protestant traditions observe Lent. It's a 40-day period of devotion. It's marked by a form of fasting. It's all to help prepare the soul to observe Easter. It's a time of prayer, penance, almsgiving, mortification of the flesh. Catholics teach abstaining from meat during this time. Fish is okay, but no red meat. And also giving up something else like chocolate or TV 
to help you focus more on the Lord. But did you know the Bible never teaches this anywhere? Lent is not in Scripture. It's a man-made tradition came later in church history. Now, if you want to impose a 40-day fast on yourself to pray more or read the Bible more, fantastic. Go right ahead. The second you impose that on others, you've entered legalism. That's a, a law, a decree that the Bible does not give. You cannot go that far. Furthermore, though, if you really want to know for most how hollow Lent is, Lent begins on Ash Wednesday. You know what the day before is called? Fat Tuesday. Do you know what Fat Tuesday is in French? Mardi Gras. And so do you realize Mardi Gras festivals or carnivals, as they're sometimes called, they came about as pre-Lent festivals so people could binge party and indulge like every lust of the flesh before they had to give it all up for Lent. That Mardi Gras started as a feast of the flesh. I think it's only gotten worse. But hey, these people, they're going to give up coffee for 40 days thereafter. So they're still spiritual, right? Verse 23, these are matters which have to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and the severe treatment of the body. There's no value against fleshly indulgence. The ascetics fail to understand the heart of our problem, which is the problem of our heart. You don't just need a list of rules and regulations and restrictions to achieve salvation or spirituality. You need a completely new heart. You need a spiritual heart transplant. You need to be made spiritually alive. You can't do that. There's nothing you can do. It can't be done to you, for you though. And there's only one way. It's by God's will through faith in Christ. It's only faith in Christ that leads to this path. And this is what's promised in the new birth. That Christ himself promised this new birth. It's a new heart, a new nature that he would give to his people. And that's why the only path of salvation is through him. It's his work alone that saves us. Not, not our efforts. His effort on the cross is what paid for our sins. He died. He rose again for our justification. That includes the forgiveness of our sins. And it also includes this spiritual resurrection. The Lord grants to those who are his new heart, new life, a new eternal life to those who confess him as their Lord and Savior alone. That is what you must do. You must turn to Jesus, crying out for him to do for you what you can't do for yourself. You have to die. Not just limit your body. You've got to die. Die to all of yourself and self-reliance. But as you die with Christ, you're buried with Christ, you're then raised with Christ to new life, new living. And it's only in that new life do you find the means to true growth and spirituality. And it's not the law. It's not the flesh. It is the spirit. That God's own spirit comes to dwell in those who trust Jesus, giving them power to live out their newness, to overcome the desires of their flesh, and, and then to bear fruit that is actually pleasing to God. This all comes about one way and, and one way only. It's by faith in Christ. And so go to Jesus by faith and make sure you are trusting in him only and not yourself. And then don't be influenced or intimidated by those who draw on legalism or mysticism. 
or asceticism as the path to God. We, we need to have compassion on such people who are still bound up in man's ways, man's thinking, man's system. Share the gospel with them. Share Christ with them. But don't be intimidated by them. Don't follow them. Follow Christ. Now, I think we can wrap up this whole discussion with the testimony of Martin Luther. Martin Luther is 21 years old when he was caught in a thunder and lightning storm. He thought he was going to die. So he cried out to St. Anne to deliver him. He made a vow that if she preserved his life through this storm, he would become a monk, enter a monastery, become a monk. And well, he lived. So he did it. He left law school. He's 21 years old. He sold all of his possessions and he entered an Augustinian monastery. And Luther soon became a super monk. He quickly outdid all others in expression of ascetic devotion, prayer, fasting, sleep deprivation, exposure to the cold. He'd sleep on a cold stone cell with no blanket. And Luther wrote, quote, if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I, end quote. But despite all of his extreme effort and asceticism, he did not feel an ounce closer to God. He felt further and further away. He was terrified by God and God's wrath. Why? Because he knew no matter what he did to himself and to his body, he was not perfectly righteous. God's perfectly righteous. You need to be perfectly righteous if you're going to really draw near to God, but he's not. There's nothing he could do to make himself righteous. Luther practiced flagellation. That's an act of, you know, whipping yourself on the back, oftentimes drawing blood as an act of penance. But no matter how many times he whipped himself, you know, sinful thoughts and deeds, they just kept pouring out of his heart. So more prayer, more confession, more whipping, but it just, it didn't stop. It could not change his heart. He could never be good enough to get rid of sin. Relief only came when he learned the true gospel. That the righteousness we desperately need, it only comes one way, as a gift. God just gives it to you by his grace through Christ who earned and gives us his righteousness. We receive it merely by faith. If we could earn or starve our way to God, Jesus didn't need to come. But he did need to come because there was no way we could get to God. He did the work for us. We receive his righteousness just by trusting in him and not self. So Luther came to genuine salvation. He received the new birth. He experienced freedom from sin. And thereafter, in his writings, he ardently opposed asceticism and monasticism as perversions of Christianity. He wrote, quote, Pretentious lives lived under vows, talking about monks, are more hostile to faith than anything else can be, end quote. And when you think about it, the monk is the most self-reliant person on the planet. Thinking he's doing all these things, it's getting him closer. That's the opposite of faith. He wrote how monks were so proud and puffed up, they could not show mercy to sinners. They could not manifest love because they believed others were not even worthy to lick their shoes. You know, asceticism is not the answer. What is the answer? Luther himself preached later on a Sunday service. He said this, quote, What then must we do? 
you must do as follows. You must acknowledge that you are condemned by the law and the devil's own property and that you are unable to rescue yourself by any power of your own. Therefore, you must flee to God and pray him to change you or all is lost and ruined. If you're here today and you've been living under the burden of sin, but you've been relying on self to change you or to save you, I pray you pray this prayer today. It's a prayer of faith. Its object is is Christ alone. It's one that God promises to hear and answer. And as you call out to him through his son, he will make you alive, give you freedom from sin, and show you the life-changing power, not of the law or the flesh, but of the spirit. And so you pray that prayer today. Let's pray together. And Father in heaven, we do pray and, and praise your name for the Christ whom you've already sent. You've given the Savior to us. Knowing that we were lost and blind and shackled in, in our bodies, there's nothing we could do about it. There's no amount of effort or works or strict discipline could ever change our natures. Our hearts were desperately sick. We couldn't even understand them. But by your mercy and grace, you provided a real solution in in Christ and his death on the cross and resurrection. He paid for our sin debt, all that which we have done that's unrighteous. He completely paid for. And even on top of that, in rising to new life, he offers those who, who come to him humbly new life. And that's what we must do. We must go to the Savior acknowledging we can't. We, we can do nothing. And faith is the cry. We, we, just, we are insufficient for anything. But Christ is all sufficient. So we, we don't need to look elsewhere, Lord, to legalism, to mysticism, to asceticism. They're, they're dead ends. We just need to go through your son only. Now pray through our time in Colossians so far that we just set our eyes more and more on Christ. That if anything we learn, we just need him. That, that's all we need for all matters of life and godliness, for salvation for sanctification. We just need Christ to set our minds on things above and we continually, day by day, draw near to you through him, the one mediator between God and man. To his glory and to his name's praise, we pray. Amen.